Well, as we all know, we're in a series in the book of Mark, and Mark's been a, a, great, uh, a great book, a great book where we learn about Christ. We learn about his love and his service and his sacrifice for us, and we're also learning about how, uh, how we as his disciples live a life of worship to him, a life surrendered to him. And today we're going to be, uh, this is probably one of the strongest messages that I've ever had the pleasure to bring in my life. We speak about the good news of the gospel, and the gospel is good news. The gospel, just like Alicia had shared, that the gospel is that she did not have to be perfect. The gospel is that we are, although we are sinners, we are broken, we come to a God that saw us in our condition, in our brokenness, in our sin, how we were separated from him, and he did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And this is definitely good news. But in order for us to understand the good news, we have to understand the good news within the context of the bad news. And the bad news is that we are sinners. The bad news is that we are, uh, the Bible calls us children of wrath, that the wrath of God is pointed at us because we're sinners. He's a righteous God and he has to judge sin. So in order for us to understand the good news, like I said, we have to understand that good news within the context of the bad news. I'm going to talk about a little bit about that bad news. And I've titled this, uh, this message today, Sin is Dead Serious. Sin is Dead Serious. And usually, like, when I'm speaking, I usually, I, I'm able to just, uh, you know, uh, uh, I do a lot of uh, improv comedy. And I, I was today, I was wondering, I was like, man, I wonder if I'm going to be able to find opportunities to say jokes today. But anyway, but anyway, bear with me. This is the word of God. It is good. And it is good for us to listen to it. Amen. So um, Mark chapter 9, verse 42, and we're going to be in 42 to 50. It says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it is better, it, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than two hands, than with two hands to go to hell, uh, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And if you are following along, you may have wondered why I did not read verse 44, verse 46. Um, this happened last time I spoke to, um, to try to give a short explanation of it. Um, verse 44 and 46 are not in the earliest manuscripts that we have found. So we, have, we found, when we, with the word of God, we have these manuscripts. And then we found earlier, uh, uh, later on, manuscripts that are earlier. So we believe that the earlier manuscripts are more closer to the original, uh, uh, the original um, uh, scripture. So in this case, it's very easy because verse 44 and 46 are exactly what verse 48 says. So without wasting time on that, I just want to explain that just in case you're wondering if I didn't like those, if you're wondering, maybe I just didn't like those verses and I just cut them out. It wasn't because of that. 
I found an opportunity for a joke. So anyway, so um, the big idea is that God takes sin very serious. And he calls his disciples to be intentional about dealing with their sin and to avoid causing others to stumble. I'm going to ask you to join me in prayer real quick. Lord, we come before you, um, Lord, asking you to speak to us. We love your word. And we know that everything that you have to say is important to us. And I pray, Lord, that you may open up our hearts, help us to understand your word. Lord, I pray that you may bring conviction to our hearts. I pray that you may bring encouragement where we need encouragement, direction where we need direction. I pray that you may speak to us, transform us, help us to be more and more like you, Jesus. And we ask you all this in your name, Jesus. So a lot of times when we uh, talk about Jesus, people are saying, oh, you know, you, I don't, you don't, talk, don't talk to me about sin. Why don't you just talk to me about love just like Jesus did? And that's true. But we'll see in the scripture, Jesus said some of the kindest words that you will ever hear. But he also said some of the hardest words that you will ever hear. Our God is a loving God, but he is also a righteous God. And the word of God sort of balances these, this out throughout all of scripture. He doesn't take away any of his righteousness to become more loving. He doesn't take away any of, any of his lovingness, if that's a real word, I like to make up words, to become more righteous. But he is both all righteous and all loving at the same time and all wise. And I'll add them in because it takes wisdom in order to be able to balance these things together. So um, when people say, I don't like to hear fire and brimstone preachers, we're going to hear, we see in the scripture that Jesus actually was a fire and brimstone preacher, right? But but when we think about fire and brimstone preaching, we don't think that they're uh, preaching a complete gospel, but we know that Jesus did. And Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. And I think that one of the reasons, this is, the Bible doesn't say this, but I think that one of the reasons why he did this is because we wouldn't believe anybody else if they spoke about it. You know, we would try to find uh, uh, loopholes or saying it may be a symbolic. No, but Jesus spoke of a literal hell. This section of scripture also is loaded with hyperbole. And the word hyperbole means to exaggerate, to drive home a point. So as we read the Bible, uh, we are taught to take the, the, the word of God first of all literal, right? We want to understand it for what it's saying at face value. And then when, 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 when face value doesn't quite, quite work, then we, then we try to look at it and see if there's some symbolism there. We don't want to start on the other side and start looking at it symbolically. People get lost in that when they look at this. Oh, what does this really mean? I mean, it means what it says, first of all. But this scripture, there was a lot of hyperbole here. And when we see that, we, we say the hyperbole is, is uh, exaggerating to drive home a point. We don't get to ignore the point just because it's hyperbole. Amen. So we want to be able to figure out what is the point that Jesus was trying to say here. We want to understand what was the Holy Spirit inspiring the writer to say to the reader. Um, we know that this is hyperbole because uh, in, in, in Jesus, God is not going to go against his own scripture. In Luke uh, fourteen twenty six, it says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers, and yes, his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Right? This is an example of hyperbole. Because in the Ten Commandments, it says to love your parents, right, and to honor your parents. 
right? So we know that it's hyperbole because it's, it, 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 it goes contrary to what Scripture says. In other words, you understand what I'm saying? So I'm just giving you some examples of, of hyperbole in the Bible. Jesus said to eat his body and to drink, to eat his body and drink his blood. We're not literally eating his body and blood, right? There's some hyperbole there. There's a, a symbolism there. And also when he said to take up his, your cross and follow him, he wasn't ex- expecting you to be crucified. He's talking about a life that's totally surrendered, given to him, a life that trusts him, a life that lives a life of worship towards him. So we are able to understand these things, but some people have taken these verses very literal, and they've actually cut off parts of their bodies to try to stop themselves from sinning. And they were sad because they realized that they continue to sin. So we know that this is, like I said, not something that Jesus expects us to do because we're all sinners. We we will all be walking around blind or not able to walk around because we will have no feet, no hands, and no eyes. So we know that, like I said, that this is hyperbole. But what Jesus was speaking about here, he's speaking about radical discipleship, which is one of our core values. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be a follower of Jesus. To be a follower of Jesus is to live like Jesus. So Jesus' expectations for his people are to live like him. And did Jesus live in sin? No. And I'm not saying that we're going to reach sinless perfection. That's a false teaching. But the thing is that Jesus wants us to deal with our sin. This scripture teaches us a little bit about the relationship that Christians should have with sin. So in this, he was starting to reveal to his disciples about being a disciple. And being a disciple of Jesus is something that's very extreme. He's called people to repent, to believe in him. And in certain examples, he asked the rich young ruler to give away all of his possessions. That's, that's extreme, isn't it? He has also called his 12 disciples to come and follow him. And to leave everything behind and to come follow him. And to hate their lives and to hate their own selves and not to... Think of themselves uh, as more important than anything else. That's pretty radical, isn't it? And Jesus calls us to live a radical life for him. This is challenging to our American Christianity where we want to do everything that's comfortable. We want to be able to, to, to not be challenged. We want to come in here on Sunday morning, hear something that makes us feel good. And I'm not talking about us necessarily here. I'm talking about just more the, the condition of the church in 2021. We want to hear something that makes us feel good and go outside and, and just forget about it. But the life serving Jesus is a life denying yourself to live for him. Amen? And when the way we deal with sin, there's usually two extremes. We have one extreme where we have a, a hypersensitivity to sin and everything becomes a sin. And, and, and we call things sin that the Bible does not call sin. And we dip into legalism and trying to earn our own salvation. But I think the one that's more prevalent in our society is where that we're very comfortable with sin. And we become numb to the, con- the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And we believe that God's job is to make us happy instead of to make us, uh, to, for us to live lives that glorify him. Amen? So, well, in verse 41, he says over here, um, well, I mean, just the, the context, the Bible says that he's in uh, Capernaum. It says that he was in the house. And most uh, theologians believe that this is Peter's house. So he's there in the house and he's having this conversation. They're having, they, they just had an argument over which one was the greatest disciple. 
you know, so Jesus' disciples didn't, weren't getting it. They were speaking about that we have to be like children to enter the kingdom of God. This was a general audience. There were women, children, adults there. And he said in verse 41, not, it's not part of this, but the, the verse before it says, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose their reward. So we see that there's a great reward for little things that are done for God's people. God will honor those who love and serve his children. But we see a contrast here in verse 42. It says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Wow, that sounds like some straight mafia stuff to me. Coming from Brooklyn, you know, I hear all these things. I'm going to break your kneecaps and stuff like that. Anyway, so these little ones are referring to God's children, the people that serve God, the, 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 uh, the, the disciples of Christ, the children of God. And when we hear, a lot of times when we hear the word uh, for father in the Bible, we hear the word Abba, right? And we think right away, we think daddy, right? We think of daddy, intimate relationship. And it is that intimate relationship but it is also nuanced. There's also a part of it that is saying, Father, I will do whatever you ask me. So it is both the intimacy, but there is also a strength that, that's there. And that same strength that demands obedience and respect is the strength that also causes him to be very protective of his children. And if you're a, a, a parent, you've probably experienced that if somebody was messing with your children. I know when, when, when Michaela was like one years old, we were at an appointment, and I may have shared this story before. But um, man, when you're a parent, some stuff comes out of you that you didn't even know existed. It's just weird. Um, so anyway, we were at an appointment. There was like a little table where kids were playing, and she's there playing, and I see this little kid walking around just pushing kids on the floor. And I'm just watching. Like, he better not come to my daughter. You know, he's walking around, and he pushed he pushed her on the floor, and I got Brooklyn real quick. I said, yo, whose kid is this? Whose kid is this? And I'm like, because he's walking around pushing, and nobody's saying anything. And I'm just like, Ooh, okay. And then I sat down. And it was weird. Something arose in me, this protector, this, this father that I love my daughter, and I don't want anything or anyone to harm my daughter. It just came out of me. It was weird, you know? And maybe, you know, I was probably in the flesh there, but... Hopefully, I'm able to do that in a godly way also. But anyway, so when people love me, that's cool. But when people love my children, it really touches my heart. But when people mess with my children, there's something inside of me that wants to protect them. And I believe that God has the same heart for us. We see in verse 37, and I don't have it up there, but it says, Whoever receives, receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, not me, but they receive who sent me. So if we receive these children, we receive Christ. If we receive Christ, then we receive the Father who sent Jesus. So uh, we also see that, uh, that when, when, when Jesus spoke to Saul, he said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? So we see that God takes what's done to his children very personal. God told Abraham, whoever blesses you will be blessed. Whoever curses you will be cursed. In Zechariah 2.8, it says, Whoever touches Israel, it is like they touch the apple of his eye. And the apple of the eye is the pupil. So if you mess with God's children, it's like you stick your finger in his eye. 
So we see that God has an attitude of protection for his people. So we understand this when Jesus said, when Jesus is saying, whoever causes one of these little ones to fall, it is better for, for them. Uh, it would be better for him to, if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown in the sea. He is saying that it is better, you're better off dead than to mess with my children. I let that sink in. God loves his children. The word, uh, uh, the word, where is it? The word uh, sin here is, the word means to, it means to, to cause to stumble, to entice, or to cause to fall. So if we are to, if we are to, uh, we are enticing the people of God to sin, then we're going to have a problem with God. In, in, in Matthew's uh, version of the story, he said in 18.7, uh, Woe to the world for temptations for, to sin, for it's necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. So woe to the tempter. And we expect the world to be tempters. We expect the world to entice the uh, people of God to want to sin, but let that not be said about God's people. Let it not be said about God's people. So how can we cause other people to stumble? I mean, one of the obvious ones is if we're sinning and we invite other Christians to come and sin with us, right? A way that we can cause people to stumble is also by teaching false doctrine. Because a wrong, uh, inaccurate understanding of Christ actually leads people away. So that's more for leaders. But when we speak to people, we want to be able to have a good understanding of who God is. Another way that we cause others to stumble is to prov- provoke them to anger. Anybody that's married knows that they have failed at this. Because <laughs> I know my wife provokes me to anger all the time. I was going to No, but, you know, we all provoke each other. And we, sometimes we provoke our children to anger. And our children provoke us to anger. So this is something that we need to take more serious, even in our own households. Let us love each other and lead each other to growth in our relationship with God, not causing each other to stumble. Also, provoking people to jealousy. I mean, these days, uh, we don't have a bunch of younger people here, but with social media, everything is about putting out there so the world can see. We can stir people up for, for, to stumble in jealousy or even stir people up to, st- to stumble if we're not dressing modestly, right? And this is for guys and girls, not just girls. Again, social media, you know, yep. Duck face, you know, cleavage showing, and then they have a Bible verse on the bottom, you know? It's not, it's not, that's not, we're, we're supposed to be honoring God, we're, and, and we not, do not want to be a stumbling block to other people. Like I said, we want to be able to treat people with love. We want to be, to be able to help people to grow in their relationship with God. So we need to seek to lift people up, and not only should you avoid causing others to stumble, but we should avoid sinning ourselves. We want to be intentional about killing sin. Verse 43 says, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. For it's better for you to enter the life crippled than with two hands and go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and fire does not quench. Again, very strong words from Jesus. 
And before you guys, I mean, I know people at home, you might have a hacksaw out. Wait up. Like I said, this is only hyperbole. He's not speaking about actually uh, cutting off your body because there are verses in the Bible that talk about that, that it's a sin to, to cut off parts of your body. So, again, we have to reinterpret this. So we know that sin is a big deal. In the Old, the Old Testament sacrifice before Jesus came, uh, an animal was sacrificed for our sin. What is this supposed to communicate to us? This is supposed to communicate to us that our sin is so grievous and so bad that something has to die because of it. So this animal took the place of the people of Israel and took their sin on their bodies. So Jesus did the same thing. Jesus died for our sins. So, I mean, if, if, we, if Jesus took on our sin and we appreciate that, how are we to continue living in sin as God's people? It's sort of like, if, let's say I have a child and they have, you know, they've accumulated a bunch of debt, you know, 50 grand in debt. And I say, you know what, I'm going to pay that off and give them the clean slate. And then I see them going to like a, a fancy steakhouse using their credit card the next day. You know what I mean? Jesus died for our sin. So even though we know that we are forgiven of our sins, it doesn't mean that we should continue uh, to sin here. So even Jesus here was seeming to target non-believers, though, because he was talking about hell. And we know that us as believers, we have been saved. We have been cleansed of all of our sin. So even though he, he, he's talking about hell to non-believers, still, we still are, are able to understand what his mentality towards sin was. Amen? Um, so Jesus was basically telling them, turn or burn. We don't like to hear that, right? Because the, the hellfire and brimstone preachers, turn or burn. He's telling them, if you do not turn from your sin, you're going to spend eternity apart from me, and you're going to spend eternity suffering in hell. Amen? So, um, so like I said, even though it's more speaking to non-believers, we, there's still ways that we can apply this to our lives. We, we, uh, just a, a great quote by John Owen is he said the choices believers who are assuredly freed from the condemning power of sin ought yet to make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin do you mortify do you make it your daily work be all, <clears throat> be always <clears throat> be always at it whilst you live cease not a day from this work be killing sin or it will be killing you so he's saying here, basically, although we are believers and we are freed from eternal uh, condemnation, it still does not mean that we should be okay with sin. We are to constantly be killing sin, and we'll get more into that later on. Second Corinthians 7.1 says, Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. There are <clears throat> verses all over the Bible speaking to believers, saying that we should deal with our sin. Now, it doesn't mean that people are saved by not sinning. Because either way, like I said, if someone were to, to cut off their arm and their eyes and their, and their legs and, and, and just to avoid sinning externally, they would still sin in other ways because we still need a new heart. We still need Jesus to come into our hearts and to transform our hearts. So, I mean, he spoke about this um, in, in chapter 7. He said that what comes out of a person... Uh, is what defiles them. It says in, in verse 21, from, for from within, 
Out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual uh, immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So we eat, all people are, are, in, are born sinners, and we need Jesus to come and to give us a new heart. So it's stopping sin. We can do behavior modification, and our heart still needs to be changed. You get what I'm saying? So it's not about the outside. It's about Jesus coming in and him transforming us from the inside out, not from the outside in. That's the point I'm trying to make. James 1.14 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desires, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So he is tempted by his own desires. The temptation comes from what, I mean, there's outside things that entice us, but it pulls out what's inside of us. Even on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was saying that the outside action is not the issue. The issue is the heart. So we need Jesus to come and to deal with our hearts when it comes to sin. Sam Storm said, very little, if any sin comes out of your heart, that it doesn't enter through the eyes. Our external members are but the instruments we employ to gratify the, the lust that emerges from within. What our Lord was advocating, therefore, was not literal, physical self-maiming, but a ruthless, moral self-denial. Not, mutilate, not, muti- not mutilation, but mortification is the path to holiness, he taught. So having a ruthless, moral self-denial. And he says over here the word mortification. And the word um, mortification means to put to death. Uh, Colossians 5, uh, 3, 5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of the, these, the wrath of God is coming. The word mortify means to kill, to subdue, to put to death. And God has called us to put to death our sinful desires. Um, we are saved and we're born again and we become children of God instantly. And then we await one day and we become justified for all our sins instantly. We await one day for glorification where we receive our new bodies. But from salvation till that day, we're in a process that we call sanctification, where we become more and more holy. And one of the main ways that we are sanctified in our life is by putting to death sin, being intentional about putting to death sin. And I'm going to read that, that comment again by, uh, and it says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. The Bible talks about that there's this civil war that we have going on in our lives between the spirit and the flesh. And it says that if we sow in the spirit, we will reap life. But if we sow in the flesh, we will reap death. The problem is that the enemy wants to destroy us. The enemy wants to destroy us. The Bible says in, in uh, uh, First Peter 3.18 that he's like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. And we treat temptation and we treat sin and we treat the enemy like if he's a puppy. And we start playing with him. We start flirting with him when he wants to destroy us. It's like inviting sin into your life. It's like buying a jar of termites and letting it loose in your house. Sin, the enemy wants to destroy us, and we 
play with him. Anything that Satan wants for our lives is not good. Can we agree with that? Anything that God wants for our lives is good. That's simple, but that's the reality. And sometimes we need to remind ourselves of these things because sin wants to destroy us. The enemy wants to destroy us. Romans 12, uh, 6, 12 says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not, do not present your, your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. We believe in the grace of God here. We know that we have been saved by grace. But it is also this grace that gives us the strength and the power to overcome sin. Let us not be comfortable with sin in our life, but let us be intentional to want to, to, to destroy it. The enemy wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your family. He wants to steal your joy. He wants to make you useless. All of these things are the things that sin do. He wants to make you depressed. Because anybody that has ever struggled with sin as a Christian know that we can't live a life of joy when we're struggling with it. It is only when we find freedom that we find this joy. We can never go back. It hurts too much. Amen? So let us be intentional about destroying sin. Galatians 5.16 says, But I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to. Now, when we're talking about us dying to sin, we have to recognize one thing. We cannot do it on our own. We cannot do this. We can only do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God inside of us is the, it empowers us to live holy lives. So we have to depend on the Spirit of God and on the grace of God to help us to walk in the ways of God. Amen? God doesn't tell you what to do and just leave it up to you to do it because we do not have the power in our own to do it. So holiness is built on the righteousness of Jesus. The righteousness of Jesus that has been given to us, that has been imputed to us. Holiness is built on worship. We live, we live sinless lives or, or avoid sin when we value God above all things. And I'm not talking about just singing. When we sing, we're expressing worship to God. But worship is the, is, is, takes place in the life, of, uh, in the heart of a person that has a throne that God sits on that throne. That God is more valuable than anything else in the world. So basically what he's saying in these verses is that no matter what it is that causes you to sin, it is not as valuable as I am. He is more valuable than that thing. Amen? Ultimately, these verses is, are calling to repentance. It's calling the sinner to repentance, yes, but it's calling us to live a life of continuous repentance, continuously turning from sin. We have to deal drastically with sin because... Uh, there is never a time that Jesus is okay with our sin. He had to die for our sin. Why would he be okay with it if he's a righteous 
God. We talk about that Jesus was punished for our sin, but yet we may be very flippant when it comes to our own sin. We say, oh, he doesn't mind, or, oh, but doesn't he forgive? A lot of times when we have this mentality, if, 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 if our theology causes us to believe that Jesus is okay with our sin, then we're not reading the Bible right. He's not okay with it. And again, let me remind you, we come and we enter this conversation as his children. We enter this conversation as forgiven. We answer this conversation under the grace and the mercy of God. Amen? And that doesn't change that. But it's still, we still need to deal with our sin. You understand? God is, he's, he's, he's gracious, he's merciful, he's compassionate, he's, he's kind. Uh, the, the blood of Jesus covers all of our sin, but he's still not okay with our sin. That make sense? Death came through sin, and the Bible says that the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. We want to avoid death. Yes, we're human. Yes, we fall short. Yes, we struggle. But we have to constantly live a life of repentance before the Lord in humility and being able to encourage one another to be able to walk in the ways that God has called us to live. Amen? The, the last verses are in verse 49. It says, For everyone who will be salted with fire, salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. You can imagine how excited I was when I started studying this and all the commentary said that these are some of the hardest verses in the Bible to interpret. <laughs> but um, <laughs> from what I've gathered and studied, this is what I see from this. When it's, in the previous verses, when it's talking about fire, it's talking about the fire of judgment. I believe the fire here is the fire of purification. When he's talking about being salted with fire. Uh, many uh, uh, theologians believe that this is talking about the suffering in the life of, a, of the believer that produces holiness. The Jews had a saying that says the world cannot survive without salt. Salt was very important to this culture. And they, salt was used in, in the sacrifices. Salt was used as a preservative. And salt was also used to purify things. Um, in, the, in, the, in, the, in, the ta in the tabernacle, like I said, there was salt that was placed on, an, on a burnt offering. And this burnt offering was an unblemished animal, an animal that came that was offered to God. And it was totally consumed for the Lord. So this animal was totally devoted to God. And this sacrifice... That, that, that what we can see from the sacrifices, talking about us here, that we should be totally devoted to God. Uh, Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by telling you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So being totally devoted to God, living a life as a living sacrifice, which is like an oxymoron because um, a, a sacrifice is about death and this is a living sacrifice. So the way that we, this comes out is that we die to ourselves to live for Jesus. Amen? 
So just like this sac- the, sal- the sacrifice was salted and also it had fire, then we live our lives as a living sacrifice. We see that, like I said before, that salt was also preservative. And um, salt was used to preserve meat before we had refrigeration. And it would stop the decay. And uh, a great example of that is beef jerky. That's how they make beef jerky. So, um, so how does salt lose its saltiness? Um, I did a little science work. And salt is stable. It does not lose its flavor or anything. So the only way that it could become uh, unsalty is if it gets wet or if it's mixed with other minerals. So when we're speaking about here, it's purity. Purity means basically to be unmixed, to be holy, to be uh, set apart, to be used by God, not mixed, living for life, uh, living life for Jesus only. Um, Sinclair Ferguson says, and I almost said it in his voice. Anyway, nobody knows who he is probably. Uh, Unless we maintain the purity of our own lives and are purified by the flames of testing and remain faithful to Christ, our lives will have no preserving influence on this corrupt world. The life of a disciple is a life of sanctification, a life of purification, a life that walks in worship and in glory to God. By dying to ourselves, we are holy and righteous. We are totally surrendered. We are consecrated to Him, consecrated to God, and consecrated to His purposes. We become instruments of worship. We become set apart to be used for His glory. And there is a a purification process. And like I said earlier, the greatest part is that we have the Spirit of God living inside of us that does this in us. We are not called to do this on our own. The process of sanctification becomes a partnership between us and God as we surrender to the Spirit of God and the Spirit uh, empowers us and and we walk and we become more and more like Jesus. We walk and we become a preservative in the lives of the people around us. And we are, but if we are mixed, as we said before, then we become useless. And that's not what we want. And all it says, it says, and to be at peace with one another, Jesus desires harmony for all of us, us to be united to him and to be united one another in love, encouraging, building one another up, not being a hindrance, not trying to compete over who is the greatest, just like the disciples did, but walking together, unified with him, walking and living like Jesus and doing it together. I'm not sure if you guys had, uh, I'm sure everybody has seen this. This is the, the Champagne Tower, uh, South Tower condo. And this, uh, on Thursday, this fell. I'm sure you guys have seen this. I'm going to read a little bit of an article that I, um, says an engineer warned in October 2018 that he had discovered major structural damage to a concrete slab below the pool deck in the section of the Champlain Towers South Condominium buildings that collapsed on Thursday, killing at least four and leaving scores trapped, according to records released by local authorities late Friday. And I actually found out that there were more reports in the 90s that this building was sinking and sinking pretty fast. The engineer Frank P. Morabito said in a structural survey report that waterproofing below the water deck and entrance drive had failed, allowing damaging leaks. And he said, quote, failure to replace the waterproofing in the near future will cause the extent of the concrete deterioration to expand exponentially. Morabito said that it 
in his inspection report that he also found abundant cracking and deterioration in the concrete columns, beams and walls supporting the, the parking garage under the pool deck, along with damaged and exposed rebar. The report said that the necessary repair, which would be aimed at maintaining the structural integrity of the building, would be extremely expensive and would create significant disruption for residents. Apparently, the owners of this building didn't think that it was worth it. They valued holding on to whatever money they were making above the safety of these people. And when I read the story, I think about sin in our lives. Jesus is basically saying it is no matter what it costs, it is better for you to destroy your sin, to get rid of whatever you need to, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a job, whether it's a, I don't know, whatever it is that God is saying, we need to deal with our sin. If there's something that's causing us to sin, then we are better off to cut that out of our lives than to continue going on before our building comes tumbling down. So I'll leave you with a few um, application points. And I'm gonna Ask the Holy Spirit to bring conviction to you about your sin. If we're talking about sin, I know when I read sin, about sin in the word of God and killing sin, thoughts come to my head of, of things that I struggle with. And I'm sure, I'm, I think that would probably happen for all of us. Maybe it should, I think it should, right? Because we all have struggles. So that's, that's what God wants to put his finger on today. What can you do? What is there that you can do to be able to cut something off to help you not to sin in this area or any other areas? We all have struggles. Like I said, with the rich young ruler, it wasn't that being rich was a sin. But for him, his riches were his idol. And that's why Jesus asked him, to get rid of that. And I, I might be dating myself here, but I remember there was a song uh, by Meatloaf. And the line said, I will do anything for love, but I won't do that. I don't know if anybody knows that song. The song never says what that is. I call it the Meatloaf principle. What is the that in your life that you're not willing to give up for God? What is it? 90s music was the best. <laughs> so the beautiful thing is that we, we find this, we can run to our merciful, gracious Father who loves us the same in our best day and in our worst day. We can run and to lean into the grace of God and to ask the Holy Spirit to help us, to be able to help us to be able to die to this sin. Also, my second uh, application point is by the grace of God, make a decision to change. Even if you've been struggling with the same thing for years, make a decision to change. I remember with the, with, I mean, the three Hebrew uh, children that, uh, that, they were, that they didn't want to eat the, the, the king's uh, food because it was against their kosher uh, you know, Jewish food. And they said that they determined in their hearts Determine in your heart today that you're going to make a change. Also knowing, like I said, I put here by the grace of God. Not on your own, but make a decision. If you don't decide to, it's never going to happen. 
If you don't desire to run to God, and, and like I said, sanctification is a process between us and God. We have the power of the, we have the spirit of God that raised, resurrected Jesus from the dead living inside of us. And we'll give power and strength to our mortal bodies to be able to overcome sin. Amen? And number three, be intentional about maintaining your relationship with God. In, in John 15, Jesus talks about abiding in him. Him being the branches, uh, um, us being the branches and him being the, the or what, when I look at a tree, I think about a regular tree. So I think about the trunk of a tree more than the vine. Um, and the thing is that the, the vine is the one that produces the fruit, not the branch. The branch bears the fruit, but it's the vine that produces it. So in order for the branch to be able to bear fruit, it has to stay connected to the vine. This is what Jesus was talking about, to abide in him, to have a consistent relationship with him, to spend time with him, spend time in the word, spend time in prayer, spend time with others discussing him and encouraging one another in him. Live a life of worship. Value him above all things. Value him above sin, above anything that tries to to deviate you from the path that he has set for you. And this is how we live as true disciples. So I'm going to lead us in prayer as we get set to sing this last song. Lord, we come before you to thank you for all that you have done. We thank that you died for our sins.